20, verses 20 through 34. And Jesus and the crowds from the north are heading toward Jerusalem to celebrate Passover week. That's why they are moving from north in the region of Galilee southward about 75 or 80 miles into Jerusalem because this is one of the three annual feasts that uh, Jews often took off time from work to celebrate. And the events in verses 20 through 34 take place during this journey southward. Okay? Now here's how I'm going to divide the section for you. Verses 20 through 23, we're going to see a mo the mother's intervention, or a mother's intervention. And that's a very interesting little section. Verse 24, we have the apostles' indignation. Okay. And then verses 25 through 29, we have Jesus' instruction. And then that is followed, finally, by a healing scene. And we'll be looking at that as well. So let's look at this first section, a mother's intervention, and it says in verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and other on the left, in your kingdom. Now this is a shocking scene, and it probably takes place during a rest stop. Now why would I say that? Because you can't be kneeling down and walking at the same time. You see that? It says in verse 20 that she was kneeling down, so probably they stopped, they're going to drink, rest under a tree, and here she comes, traipsing over with her son, she gets down on her knees, and she makes a request. I call it a shocking scene because uh, the mother makes the request. She brings her boys along. But these aren't kids. These guys are in their late 20s, early 30s. And here comes mama. <laughs> to top it off, these are the two that the Bible calls the sons of thunder. Loud, boisterous, will take the whole world on single-handedly. But in this case, they act like whips. And uh, they get their mother to come. And so she comes and she makes this request. Now, it's also not only a shocking scene. When you look at it, it's a very revealing scene. Because it tells me that they still don't understand this whole concept of the kingdom. They're thinking that the time is very short. <clears throat> They're only uh, a few miles away from Jerusalem at this point. Within a few days, Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government, set up the kingdom of Israel. He's going to sit on David's throne, and one guy wants to be the secretary of state, another guy wants to be the chief of staff in this new kingdom, and it shows you they don't understand anything. In fact, Jesus has three times told them already that he's not going to destroy Rome. Rome's going to destroy him. They're going to kill him. And then God will miraculously raise him from the dead. And his kingdom is not going to be the way they understand it. He's not going to rule initially from the earth. He's going to rule over the earth, but he's going to rule from his throne in heaven initially. So we see that they're very confused about all this. Now, just an observation. 
when we go through this passage, you'll see that this was not the mother's idea. This is not a Hollywood stage mother who's trying to push her children to get good positions, you know, in the in the movie. She's not trying to get her son's good positions in the kingdom. This is the kid's idea. These are the son's ideas. And we know this from the next verse. Verse 22. Look what it says. Jesus said, You do not know what you ask. Now look at the pronoun you there. Do you see that? That is a plural pronoun. He's not speaking to the mother alone. She alone asked the question, but he doesn't speak to her. He doesn't answer her. He says, you all, meaning mama and boys, really don't know what you're asking. Now, in your mind, I want you to also mark down this concept, you do not know, okay? Because you'll see how important that is. So he says, he makes a statement. And here's his statement. You do not know what you're asking. You have limited understanding of this situation. In other words, your request was as dumb as spit. That's what he's saying. Not a real smart question. There was a question, a statement, your request was asked in ignorance. You don't know what you're talking about. And then he asked a question. He says, are you able to drink, in verse 22, the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, in the Old Testament, the cup was also used metaphorically uh, to signify suffering. So he's saying, are you willing to suffer? The kind of suffering that I'm willing to suffer? And likewise, baptism also was used metaphorically to refer to death. So you're willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Are you willing to die? And even today, when we're baptized, we know that baptism represents death. First of all, it represents that we die with Christ and we raise to newness of life. But also, when we're baptized, we are pledging our allegiance to King Jesus and saying we are willing to die for him no matter what. And so he says, are you willing to suffer? And are you willing to die? And look what they said. In the verse 22. Yes. That's the short answer. We're able. Remember the song? Are you able, said the master, to be crucified with me? Now watch this next verse. Yes, his sturdy dreamers answered. To the death we follow thee. Lord, we are able. Yeah. You think the request was ignorant. The answer is even more ignorant. They don't know what they're asking because we know what happens within one week at the Garden of Gethsemane, the scripture says, and they all forsook him and fled. That's in Matthew 26. They all forsook him and fled. Doesn't look like they were willing to suffer with him. But look what Jesus says. Even though their answer was given in ignorance, he says, so, look at it. So he said to them, in light of the light of their response, you will indeed drink the cup and be baptized, meaning with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And sure enough, James is put to death by Herod in Acts chapter 12. 
and John the Baptist likely dies in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and they both suffered, and they experienced death for the Savior. And so, he says, are you willing to suffer? Now, I'm convinced that this concept right here, remember their question was, can one sit on the right and the other sit on the left? And Jesus says, are you willing to suffer? If you want to reign with Christ, the scripture is real clear, you need to be willing to suffer with Christ. This is one of those doctrines that we skip over in evangelical circles. But I want to show you just a verse or two, let's take a little side trip here, and show you what the scripture says about reigning with Christ, what it takes to reign with Christ. Now I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bible, just turn there for a second. And I would like to know why we don't teach this doctrine. Romans chapter 8. And when you get there, that's that famous chapter in Romans where it says, you know, neither deaths or angels or anything, you familiar with that, can separate you from the love of God. But look down at verse 16. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children and heir, or, and then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, watch this. If indeed what? We suffer with it. You see that? That we may also be glorified together. Hey, we reign with Him, we're heirs with Him, but there's the suffering element that is involved. Let me show you another passage. Keep on moving in your New Testament toward Revelation, and you'll come to the T books and find 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And when you get there, look at chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. And when you get to chapter 1, look down at verse 5. He's talking here about patience and persecution and tribulations in verse 4. And then he says in verse 5 that, which is manifest evidence. These things are evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also what? Suffer. Do you see that? Kingdom of God suffering. Heirs suffering. Reigning with him suffering. One other one. Just turn the page or two to first, Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. <clears throat> and look at verse eleven. Second Timothy two eleven. This is a faithful saying: If we die with him, we shall live with him. If we what? Died with him, we should we live with him. Look. If we endure, look, if we endure, if we endure, endure what? Look, if we endure, we shall also what? Reign with Him. You see that? So that's what these passages that you see written by the Apostle Paul in Romans, Thessalonians, and Timothy are based on this concept that Jesus has in Matthew 20. So go back to Matthew 20 and look what He says there. He says... In verse 23, 
Are you able? They said, yes. He said, well, you indeed will drink from the cup, and you indeed will be baptized. In other words, you will suffer. And then he says at the end of 23 this. But, I guarantee you one thing, you're going to suffer. But, to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now notice that when Jesus says this, he doesn't have the authority to grant that. His authority is limited when Jesus is on earth. He's subservient to someone. He's subservient to his Father. I don't have this authority to grant that. Only God has that right. God the Father has the right to grant that. So Jesus has limited authority. After his resurrection, he says, all authority is given to me, doesn't he? In heaven. But here he doesn't have that authority. He says, and, and who's God going to choose to sit on his right and left hand? It'll be those who suffer. You have to meet the qualifications, but Jesus can't make the choice here. That is only the Father. That's the Father's prerogative. So we see the mother's intervention. Now we see the apostles' indignation. Look at verse 24. <coughs> And when the ten, the other ten apostles, heard it, they were greatly displeased with the mother. You know what it said? Oh no, it says with the two brothers. That shows you who put her up to it. She's just the spokesperson. Now, why do you think these apostles are angry? Oh, they want it for themselves? Why do you get angry? When you see somebody at work, finagle their way, manipulate their way, play the game, try to get themselves into the position of uh, you know, a new job or a higher position, why is it that you get upset? Is it you're jealous? You mad that you weren't able to think of it first? You think they're doing something unethical? Why are these guys mad at the two? Is it because they're wimps? Use their mother? Who would ever use your mother like that? Uh, definitely there's this, there's not a real good spirit right here between the ten and the two. So don't always think that the apostles got along. By the way, this is just an aside. If I had time to develop it, I could. But there's some indication that James and John, the wimps, are actually cousins of Jesus. Because there are other passages in the Gospels that indicate that their mother is the sister of Mary. And this is a whole uh, complicated series of events that you have to read into the Scriptures, but it's possible that the apostles are angry because it looks like these insiders, cousins, relatives, if you will, this is nepotism. Very possible. One thing we know, they're very angry. Because these guys are trying to get the positions, most likely they want them for themselves. It's a power struggle. So Jesus gives instructions. And now we come to that section, and he instructs all. And look what he says in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself. And he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority 
over there. Now I want you to see something. You see verse 25? You know. You see that? So you know? Look up in verse 22. You don't know. You see that? There's something they don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and here's something that they can all agree on. Here's something that's common knowledge that they know. What do they know? Here's what they know. Number one, he identifies some people. You know who? That the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the who, the rulers of the Gentiles, Caesar, the senators, Pontius Pilate, the power brokers in the Roman Empire, that's the who. Here's the what. Lord it over them. Over who? Over their subjects. Over the Gentiles. They exercise authority over their people. They take the bull by the horns. They set laws. They say, you'll do what we want you to do. They dominate the people. They exercise authority over the masses of people. That's what they do. Verse 26. Yet it shall not be so among you. That's not how you're to operate. Now watch. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, you know the rulers, Lord it, watch this, over them. Those who have great who are great exercise authority, look, over them. Do you see that? Right? Over them. But look in verse 26. It shall not be so, look, among you. Over them. Among you. Over them. Among you. Okay? So you see this contrast here. How shall it be among the apostles? Watch. But whosoever, it's not going to be that way among you, but whosoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now notice there's some parallels here. In verse 26, whoever desires to be great, see? Verse 27, whoever desires to be first. You see that? Whoever desires to be great, whoever desires to be first. Great and first are equals. They mean the same thing in verse 26 and 27. Look at verse 26. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your what? Servant. Look at verse 27. Whoever wants to be first among you, let him be your what? Slave. Servants and slaves mean the same thing. A slave and a servant is the person on the bottom of the totem pole. But it says those on the bottom of the totem pole among the apostles are the ones who are going to be what? Great or first. You see that? Who's great or first in the Roman Empire? Caesar. The one who has served. The senators. The ones who are served. But not so among you. In God's kingdom, what you have here basically is you have two models of greatness. You have man's kingdom, and you have God's kingdom. In man's kingdom, 
There's a rule from above. A rule from above. They rule over you. In God's kingdom, there's a rule from below. It's the servants who God sees as the rulers, as the leaders, who are first in His sight. The ones, if you want to be first, if you want the first seat in the kingdom, if you want the second seat in the kingdom, you want to be great in God's kingdom, then what do you have to be? Servant. See? But in Rome, what do you have to be? Authoritarian. Dominate people. Two different models of greatness. Man's kingdom, God's kingdom. Rule from above, rule from below. Stratification. Caesar, senators, equestrians, all goes all the way down. But in God's kingdom, it comes up. Servants, slaves, servants, so on and so forth. Those on the top dominate man's kingdom. But in God's kingdom, those who are great are those on the lowest rung of the ladder. Ruling by authority. He says, don't do that. It's not going to be that way among you. Don't follow that model. James and John are following that model. It's the wrong model to follow. That's not how we, as believers, are to operate. But yet, that's how we do operate, unfortunately, in many cases. And then he says this. Whoever desires to be first among you, leave me your slave. Now watch this, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, Jesus becomes our example. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, even to the point of death, giving his life as a ransom. You want to know why Jesus sits at God's right hand? Why did God choose Jesus to sit at his right hand? Because he served, even to the point of death. Do you know who is God's going to choose to sit at Jesus' right hand? Those have the biggest church, those have the most money, those it's going to be those who serve. Those who are willing to drink the cup, those who are willing to be baptized. I'm afraid not many of us in America are really going to be right at the top in God's kingdom. It's going to be people who have suffered for their faith, who have been persecuted for their faith. So Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve, he served. In his lifetime, he lived for others in his lifetime. And here it says, he died for others. His life was a ransom for others. He sets us free from the world system. If we follow Jesus' example, we'll be great in God's kingdom. So we should imitate Jesus' model of greatness, not the world's model of greatness. I don't know what they said at that point. Maybe they just shut up. Maybe it was time to get up out from under the tree and say, well, we need to get moving again. (laughs) The break's over, and they get moving, and they have a lot to think of because they're moving. So now we come to the healing scene in verse 29. It says, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Now this tells us where they are on the journey. They are 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, their destination. Right on the western bank of the Jordan River. 
We know exactly where they are. They're only a day out. Two days out from Jerusalem. The next major event is going to be the triumphal entry. Beginning in chapter 21. So they're almost there at this point. And then it goes on to say, And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. Uh, what are they doing there? They're beggars. <clears throat> this is the Jericho Road. It's a dangerous road. But guess what? Not during feast season because great crowds are going down the Jericho Road to Jerusalem for the feast. And uh, there are crowds and a lot of thievery going on there. But you know, you're not going to get mugged and uh, beaten up because there's so many people. But it's a great place for beggars. And so they're sitting on the road, these blind beggars. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out and they said, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now, the phrase, have mercy on us, or compassion on us, to the Jewish ear, meant, give us some alms. Because that was considered an act of passion. All Jews gave alms, or were supposed to give alms, that were to be compassionate people. That's probably what the crowd thought they were saying. But if you look carefully, we see that these blind beggars address Jesus, first of all, as Lord, which means they believe he has authority. And then they identify him as son of David, which is his messianic title. So they hear that this guy might be the Messiah, and they cry out, and they say, uh, Lord, uh, Messiah, uh, have mercy on us. And um, what's the crowd think when they hear this? Well, it says, Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Shut up! Stop your banging! That's what they think they're doing. Uh, sort of like they treated the children, wasn't it? He doesn't have time for you. Come on, he's on the mark. When he gets there, he's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to set up this kingdom of God. Come on, now shut up, shut up. Get out. Blind people aren't involved in this thing. Did you see him doing that? The crowds and the apostles are always, they don't think Jesus has time for those people that have no power, no position, on the margins. But these are exactly the people that Jesus has time for, which is amazing. So they say, shut up. I just like to say, shut up. That's how I think they probably said. They said, would you please be quiet? I don't think they said it that way. So when they told him to shut up, it says, but they cried out the more. I like this. They ignored that request. Say, have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. They just repeat it over and over again. And it gets Jesus' attention. So Jesus stood still. And he called to them. He said, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus has a sense that they're not just asking for money. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. They're not asking for a seat at his right hand or his left hand in, in the kingdom. They're just asking for sight. They have a need. Lord, can you meet a need? That our eyes may be open. Jesus had compassion. He touched them. Something that other people would have never done. Touched their eyes. And immediately, their eyes received sight. 
and they followed him. One of the signs that the kingdom has arrived, the power of the kingdom is in our midst, is when the blind eyes are open. That's Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35. It says, the blind shall see when Messiah comes. And so here is a sign that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, and the kingdom is being expressed through his power and through his person, through his ministry right now. And it says, immediately their eyes received sight. And I like this next part. It says, and they followed him. They followed him into Jerusalem. They became his disciples. They're grateful. But their eyes have been opened. Now, when you look at this, we see two requests. One request, very self-serving. I would call this not a legitimate request. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. To that request, Jesus says, I don't have the authority to give, give you the what you're in. I don't have the authority. Two blind men said, we want sight. And guess what he says? I have the authority to grant that. And he grants it. And their eyes are open. And they follow him. They follow him right into Jerusalem. They are part of the crowd in chapter 21 who stands on the sidelines and follow Jesus when they say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And they triumphantly, with their eyes now open, they're eyewitnesses to his death. With their eyes wide open, they may be eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they follow Jesus. And that's what a real disciple looks like. Next week we'll pick up at the triumphal entry in chapter 21. Lord, we thank you for a revealing passage. So often, Lord, we operate the way the world operates. We want that which is bigger, better. We want to make something of ourselves. We want to be self-serving instead of serving others. Help us to serve others first. And allow you to promote us according to your will. Lord, this is a lesson for all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.